Is the lethal injection humane? Is capital punishment humane? That is the topic of today's episode of Inside the War Room. And my guest is Dr. Surratt is William Nelson Cromwell, Professor of Jurisprudence and Political Science and Chair of Political Science at Amherst College. He is the author, most recently, of Gruesome Spectacles, Botched Executions, and America's Death Penalty, The Death in 2014, The Death Penalty on the Ballot in 2019, and the book today, Lethal Injection and the False Promise of Humane Execution. Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic read. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoy his podcast. Go, go buy the book, read it. He does a great job of telling what I didn't know about lethal injection. Without further ado, let's get to Austin. Professor Serrett, it's good to have you on the program today. How are you doing? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm well and looking forward to our conversation. Okay, so the title of the book, as I mentioned, is Lethal Injection and the False Promise of Humane Execution. And thanks to the folks over at Stanford Press for uh, sending this over to me. Um, and uh, I, I saw this. Let me just give you, um, when I saw this title, I thought, huh, okay. I, the first thing that came to mind was, I remember a story, I think it's true, uh, a few years ago where someone was getting lethal injection and like the dad of the victim or something broke in and he swapped all the medicines and they didn't actually get to go forward with the, they, they, they ran the test, but it didn't, they, they ran the, the process, but it didn't kill the person because they had swapped the medicines or something like that. That was kind of my only really thought around lethal injection was that one story. And so I was like, what do you mean? It's, it's, it's the false promise of humane execution. It was quite stunning to, to see a title. And so um, maybe unpack a little bit for us, how you got to the point to write this book. Great. So um, I've been for a long time doing scholarship on the death penalty in the United States. My interest in that scholarship has largely been to try to understand how the death penalty fits in with the society, the culture, the political system that we have. In the course of doing that work, I came to understand that uh, the death penalty in the United States is tied up with questions of technology or methods. So the legitimacy of capital punishment depends upon our capacity to execute people uh, in a way that doesn't offend the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel punishment. And the United States, unlike most other countries, so most other countries that have had the death penalty have used one technology for a very long period of time. They've hung people, they've electrocuted people. The United States, since the end of the 19th century, we've used hanging, the electric chair, the gas chamber, the firing squad, and lethal injection. Each one of them, when those technologies were introduced, the same promises were made. Namely, that this new technology, whether it's the electric chair, the gas chamber, or lethal injection, would be safe, reliable, and humane. And my interest in the book is to try to tell the story of lethal injection's history, the promises, and whether lethal injection has fulfilled that, 
that hope that it would be a technology of execution which was safe, reliable, and humane. Okay, so two things there. First, um, when you say other countries, because I'm not, this is, um, in the book you outline this state does this, this state does this. So when you say other countries, do they have more of a federal top-down policy that governs the entire, so when we're having a state system, is that part of why we're seeing these changes? Um, The other countries, I mean, choose your country, right? European countries, which no longer have the death penalty. So if you look at the history of the death penalty in countries like England or Germany, uh, yes, they're more unitary rather than federal systems. And they would adopt a method of execution and stick with it for very long periods of time. I think the United States, I think the problem of methods of execution in the United States is not simply a problem if we have different states. Because if you look, for example, at lethal injection, which was first adopted as a legal method of execution in Oklahoma in 1977 and first used in the state of Texas in 1982, very quickly, every state in the United States adopted lethal injection. Mm. So the the search for these um, better methods of execution, while largely they have been initiated in one place or another, the electric chair that was in New York, uh, and uh, you know the gas chamber that was in Nevada, and the lethal injection that was in Oklahoma. That's where they're first adopted. I don't think that the search for the humane method is a function, and the shifting of methods is a function of a federal system. I think it's a function of the commitment of the United States uh, when it punishes, not to punish in a way that is cruel. Mm. And what that means is if we can find a better method of execution that minimizes the suffering of the condemned, we have a kind of commitment to do so. Yeah, and it is interject this. We are talking about death penalty. There are some stories in the book we might get to that are a little bit graphic. So this show is rated explicit. We talked about death in this way, I don't think. So anyway, so this listener is just, we're, we're going death penalty today. So just be prepared. It, it, it is a, it is a, it can get a little gruesome. Um, okay. So let's talk about the eighth, eighth amendment. The eighth amendment is for the accused, right? So it's protecting their May I just interrupt you? Because what you said is really interesting. No, the Eighth Amendment is not for the accused. It's for the convicted. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, that's what I mean. No, no, but let me tell you why I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Um, The Fourth Amendment's prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures, that's for the accused. The Fifth Amendment, no compulsory self-incrimination, that's for the accused. The Sixth Amendment, right to a trial by jury, that's for the accused. What's remarkable about the Eighth Amendment is it's a protection for the guilty, and it's the Mm, only real provision of the Bill of Rights that focuses on not the accused, people we know to have committed or people that we have convicted of committing a crime. Okay, great, great. I'm glad you made that clarification. It's for the it's for the condemned, the 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 guilty. but, but what the point I was going to get at is, it's not, and this is, I think, when you talk about the death penalty, it's not for the general public, which means, one could argue, if the most humane way to kill someone via uh, the death penalty 
is a little bit more gory or a little bit more um, over the top, the public has to bear the burden of going along with that for the sake of the one that we are killing. Do you agree with that? I mean, is that how the, is that how we should think about this? So in other words, you think about uh, just to use a kind of, again, going to get a little little gory here, but um, as I was reading the book, I was like, okay, what would be a viable option? I thought, well, you know, if you have a guilty person and you had, I don't know, pick, pick a number six, eight, 12 guns aimed at the head and chest, not, not like at three foot range, it's going to be a gory mess, but the person dies instantaneously. Like, you know, Six shots to the head, six shots to the chest. It's it's an instantaneous death. There's not, there's not, you know, you're not going to be suffering like you described in this book. The public has to deal with that though, right? Because now it's it's bloody, it's nasty. Um, so the, does the Eighth Amendment should we consider the Eighth Amendment that perhaps to kill someone in a humane or a, a way that doesn't violate the Eighth Amendment, we'll say, um, might be a little bit more gruesome than we're expecting but it actually might be the more i hate to say humane but the more humane way from that perspective is is that a is that a viable way to think about this so i think it's what you said is is um really interesting and it, and and it, it it illuminates a kind of perplexity about what we do when we punish so uh, yes, one way of thinking about the Eighth Amendment is the Eighth Amendment is a protection for the guilty. We're not going to punish them in a cruel way. But as you point out, another way to think about what we do when we punish is how we punish is as much about us and who we want to be as it is about those who we punish. So. Um, you know, we don't burn the home of an arsonist. Why don't we do that? Well, in some kind of thin moral sense, that's what they deserve. They deserve uh, uh, they deserve to be punished in a way that reflects their crime. We don't do that because we don't want to be arsonists. And the commitment of the Eighth Amendment which I find quite remarkable is we will always aspire to be better in the way in which we treat people than the way in which they treated others. So Timothy McVeigh, Oklahoma City bombing, blows up a building, kills 163 people. We're committed, despite the cruelty of his act, not to respond in a way that is cruel. So I I agree with you. I think the all punishments, but certainly the death penalty, is as much about us as it is about the condemned. Um, And it's not just what we will tolerate in the way of gruesomeness. It's about uh, how we can both give people what they deserve without, in a sense, becoming just like them. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's part of the part in, in the book you talk about um, 
how these lethal injections, and maybe we'll dive into this portion here, how they're done. And, and this is a problem, I think. Um, lethal injection obviously would be the, the highest end, but but our, 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 our penal system is, it's off, far, remote, out of sight, right? And you, you know, and when we do see a story, it's usually some kind of story where they're sending the kids in to scare them straight or whatever, and, you know, stuff like that. Or, you know, there's a story about the guy that bombed, uh, the Las Vegas bomber escaped this weekend. So you think about the prison, but you don't think about prisons in general regularly, um, much less an execution because it usually happens. It's usually late at night, it seems like. Um, and then it's only you know, 10, 20 people, whatever it is in the room. That, I think, creates a problem to where, um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll just say this so we can frame the conversation around this for, for listeners and, and for you. I am a pro death penalty advocate, but I have a very high standard. That, I, that I'm, I'm quite concerned that we don't actually meet for most trials, much less death penalty cases. Um, so if you're going to put someone to death, then you better better be sure, sure. And I, I, you know, when I watch a lot of stuff, I'm, I'm not quite sure we meet that, to be honest with you. But but if we're going to put them to death, and we are going to, it, it, it does need to be, you know, to your point, if you find in the book you have some pretty gruesome uh, 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 bad guys that you know, do terrible things, and we should not... Um, treat them the same way, the same torturous method, right? But but also, I'm, I am concerned, and this is the thing the book brought up, is that these things are happening, and the public's not aware, myself, like I said, we're not aware that these lethal injections are not working well, they're taking forever, they might be torturous in nature. It is part of what you're arguing for the book is that lethal injections need to be more, I don't know, public's the right word, but more people participating, more news coverage like what would be this is just on the privacy issue how would we deal with that so uh executions used to be done in public uh the last public execution occurred in owensboro kentucky in the 1930s and it was a hanging Executions move behind prison walls for a variety of reasons. One reason was that they came to offend, if you allow me to say it, kind of the sensibilities. A second reason is that a public execution for some people resembled a public torture lynching. A third reason is that, you know, you can hang someone in public or maybe use the firing squad in public. You can't do the gas chamber in public, really. You can't do the electric chair in public, really. So you're right to say that we are removed, the public is removed from uh, the the spectacle of punishment. The public is removed from the day-to-day reality of punishment. Uh, You know, we drive by prisons, they're forbidding structures, uh, you know, fortress-like appropriately. So yes, most of what happens um, in the process of punishment is not very visible. Well, and you tell a story in the book. You tell, yeah, you tell a story in the book where a guy um, in California, I believe, is hanged, and his throat burst open, and he just bleeds out for 15 minutes, and it's public. And so that see, I think that's where the 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 balance of if you are a pro death penalty advocate at least is going. Okay, 
it's public. Did we, did we just violate this guy's Eighth Amendment right? Um, but it seems that the the public, if you're going to, and, and this is, I think, part of the problem that I have with the with the, the closed office. If we're going to put someone to death, and you're going to advocate for pro death penalty, you have to have a very high standard, a, yep. and then you have to make sure it's being done in a humane way. B, yep. and C, you as a citizen of the society should be be willing to endorse it because you trust the jury system, um, you trust the judges, whatever. So you you so put, tucking it away kind of almost negates a civic responsibility to the system in which he's putting people away, and, and so yeah. We, we, we don't necessarily agree on our views about the death penalty, but I, I have no, no problem with what you just said. Namely, if, if I was going to advocate for the death penalty, I would think I would subscribe to your principles. Mm. It ought to be rare, mm. reserved for uh, the worst of the worst. Uh, it needs to be done in a way to minimize uh, any form of error or arbitrariness and the public needs to take responsibility for it. Now, as to, as to your three principles, I would say the following. Um, just like there can't be uh, error-free medicine or error-free transportation or drugs that don't have side effects. Here's what we know about the death penalty that we have in the United States. It's not reserved for the worst of the worst. The people who end up on death row often are end up on death row, not because of the gravity of their crimes, but because of the quality of their lawyers. Here's what else we know. We know that the death penalty process is broken in a variety of ways. We know that large numbers of people who are factually innocent end up being convicted of capital crimes and sentenced to death row. We know that one of the best predictors of whether or not someone gets a death sentence is the race of their victim. Not their race, mm. but the race of their victim. We know that over the course of the 20th century, 3%, three out of every 100 executions were botched in the United States. We know that the most unreliable technology of execution, hanging, the electric chair, the gas chamber, the firing squad, is the one that we now use the most, and that's lethal injection. Roughly 7 8% of all lethal injections are botched. Real quick, can you define botched so people? Yeah, good, good. Thank you for asking. A botched execution is an execution that doesn't com comport with, doesn't follow the requirements of the state protocol or standard operating procedure. So we know that the death penalty system that we have doesn't live up to your second standard. And that's why the United States is in a period of national reconsideration of capital punishment. The number of death sentences in the United States is way down from what it was at the end of the 1990s. The number of executions, 
way down from what they were at the end of the 1990s. Why has that changed? What is going on since 2007, in the 15 years since 2007, more states have abolished the death penalty than in any other comparable 15 year period in the history of the country. We know that in places like Texas used to be a, a, a big user of the death penalty, executions are way down. Yeah. I think that that's happening in the United States because of your second principle, because people have come to appreciate and realize that as a practical, not as a theoretical matter, theoretically, we could design a death penalty system that would minimize error. But as a practical matter, the death penalty system in the United States is error prone, tainted with racial discrimination, and fails to deliver on the promise that we will not inflict cruelty on people. And, and I would add one thing, it's, it's so delayed that you know 20 30 years after someone's committed a heinous act you you know the the emotions around it people have matured they've they shifted their perspective they've seen a lot of stuff and so they might not even be, you know if you miss the story when it happened 20 years later like well we're gonna put bob to death it's like what do you do he killed them three girls down in san antonio you're like i don't i don't really remember that at all it sounds bad but i don't i don't really remember it you know and and what you pointed out earlier about you know we know now that we put to death innocent people has given us a sense of hesitancy. And you wonder how many people are, are truly innocent. And we're in a weird time on the death penalty or um, judicial issues at large, because, you know, if you go back to, oh, let's say, you know, the early nineties, you know, Rodney King, OJ Simpson, I don't think it, you know, the country at large fully was able to grasp I mean, I was a kid, so I definitely couldn't. But, you know, from hearing people and watching the report, the country at large wasn't fully able to grasp the arguments that were being put out there. If you forward to um, the Michael Brown incident in St. Louis, then it was like, well, I'm not sure we're quite ready to, to have a discussion. But then you go forward every year since then, and, and the conversation seems to shift like, oh, wow, these issues aren't aren't black and white, the cops aren't always good and the, the, the accused isn't always bad. And sometimes the, the roles are reversed and I take this case by case, which then begins to ask questions of, well, if the cops aren't always good, what percentage of people that they were arrested are potentially innocent? Um, if prosecutors aren't always good, what percentage of people are they, you know, they lying about, they cheating about? And we could watch, so I think we can, you, when you're exposed, we're exposed to the system a little bit more, but not to the punishment. And so the system allows us to ask questions of the system because we can see some of these injustices being um, portrayed and carried out. And then we also, I think, aren't sure that we can all agree on what, what side of an issue, you know, you take like a, a Kyle Rittenhouse, well, a very divisive topic over whose side of the debate you're on, what was right. And, and then people are starting to be pressed. Well, what are the ethics of what Rittenhouse did? That's really what it's about. What are the ethics? Do you agree with the, the, the ethics that he was operating under to go out there to Wisconsin. And so we're in a period where we can ask these questions. We just don't have a, we don't have a lot of answers. And so I think that's also part of why you're seeing maybe a, a slowdown is that people who kind of had the, these different worldviews, they're being pressed upon and not really sure how to respond. And, and one more thing I would say is I'm not sure as a death penalty advocate, how to go from where I'm at to where I want to be. Right. So to your point about, 
um, innocent people being executed, which is a travesty you never want to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm with you there. Um, I, I think under a system that I would advocate for, you'd have more murderers walk free because the bar to convict would be so high, right? And so the likelihood of having someone innocent, it's, it's there, but more likely you'd have more guilty people walking free because you couldn't, you just couldn't prove it. Um, you know, Bob's fingers were on the knife. He's guilty. Well, that I'm sorry, Bob's fingers on the knife doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. It could mean something. It doesn't mean anything, though, practically. And so you would have to really re-examine this. I don't know how we move these shifts. And that, that makes it a very, a very tough conversation for us to have because I don't even know what the next step is because it's so convoluted right now. And, and one more thing I would say is, just to be clear, prosecutors, police that advocate, that lie, manipulate, withhold evidence, bearing false witness, we'd say, they would, in my system, they would actually get the punishment of the accused because that's, that's actually how you, 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 you <laughs> that's the most, so I have a lot of problems, Professor Sarai, I can't, I can't get there today, I, but, but anyways, go ahead, I'll let you respond, we'll go back to lethal injection. So, um, when I wrote the book, the lethal injection book, uh, Earlier, I'd written a book called Gruesome Spectacles, Botched Execution, and America's mm. Death Penalty. In both of those books, I wanted to make sure that when I wrote about someone who was executed, I let my readers know about the crimes that they've committed. Now, there are many abolitionists, many people who are opposed to the death penalty that I think would have hesitated to do that. Um, but I thought it was important to do so because I think that whatever position we're advocating, we want to be um, fair-minded. I don't minimize uh, the horror uh, of the loss of a family member uh, to, a, to, a, a, to a crime. So like you and what you said, I think the world is uh, filled with, you know, shades of gray. And here's one that I, again, think we don't really think about a lot. What does someone who commits a burglary deserve by way of punishment? What does someone who assaults someone on the street deserve by way of punishment? To figure out what they deserve, I mean, again, if you, if you move away from an eye for an eye, right? If they assault someone, they should be assaulted. The arsonist home should be burned. Once you move away from that, figuring out how are we gonna respond to these things that people do, that isn't easy. Yeah. That that takes a kind of, um, I guess I'd call it translation, right? What? <laughs> how do I translate this crime into some punishment? Mm. And like you, I think um, police in the United States, prosecutors in the United States, did very difficult jobs, very difficult jobs. Absolutely. They deal with people at their worst. 
and they do it every day. So we need to understand the situation of police and prosecutors, be empathetic to the difficulties of the work they do, but hold them to very high standards. And when we think about punishment, that's my view as well. We wanna hold ourselves to very high standards when we inflict punishments, no matter how deserved they are. We wanna make sure that we've got the right person. We wanna make sure that we've respected that person's rights. And we wanna make sure that we punish in a way that does not damage our values, that respects our values, that expresses our values. Yeah, uh, and, and to your point, that's one of the things I appreciate about the book and why I reached out to you. I thought we could have a good discussion because I suspected that we'd be on differing sides of the death penalty issue. However, to your point, I noticed every person, unless I missed one, but every person that you talk about, you describe their crime and would you know, footnote where you could read more about it. And I'm like, okay, listen, that's that's admirable because even if we did disagree, which you, you don't say the book, but again, I'm just taking a guess. Even if we did disagree, you're not trying to minimize the act that they're convicted of to promote a point. And that, and listen, it's it's sad to say, but in 2022, you know, people on both sides or all sides of issues are always trying to, you know, push something this way or negate this. And so I found that quite admirable. And so I, I really I want to say this listener standpoint, I really appreciate that because it's you're reading, and we're going to talk, we'll talk about uh, uh, Doyle Ham here in a second, but you're reading about the crimes that they committed, and then you go through about what they go through in the uh, botched lethal injection, and then the, the reader has to stop and think, okay, is this, is this what we want to go through? Is this right? You know, how, how do we feel about that? So it, it actually enriches, I think, the discussion when, you, when you're, you're uh, torn between what they did and what the punishment was and what the result was going, Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, well how do we, how do we work through that? So just, just as a side note, I, I well, found that just, very admirable. Let me just say, uh, and I appreciate what you said. I wrote this book and this goes back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, uh, in the hope that it would inform people about this particular technology, how it's worked, where it came from, and I had the imagining as I was writing the book that this book might be read by death penalty supporters as well as death penalty opponents. It's a short book. I hope it's a readable book. But uh, I think it's really, I mean, in a lot of things, this is not a book that was written to preach to the already converted. This was a book that was written in the hope that fair-minded people on both sides of the death penalty debate would learn something about this thing called lethal injection and be able to make up their own mind. Uh, I think that's, that's what I do as a teacher. So when I go into a classroom, I don't tell my students, here's what you should think, please write it down. You're right. I wanna expose my students to the best arguments on both sides of every question. And I say that what we need to do is first, we need to develop our capacities to empathize with positions and views that we don't hold ourselves. 
And then when we empathize with them and understand them, we're in a better position to figure out whether or not we want to change our minds or if we want to criticize them. So I think too much of the death penalty debate has been, um, oh, let's not pay any attention to victims or, oh, who cares about the suffering of the condemned? No, I think we have to care about the suffering of victims and we have to care about what we do when we punish. Well, and presenting, presenting the argument the way that you did is the best way to accomplish that, right? Because you're not, you, you can't be accused of minimizing one thing um, or the other. So let's real quick, I want to talk about the ham uh, guy I mentioned a second ago, but let's, what, what blew my mind was you mentioned Oklahoma, where it originated. Give us the short version of how we came about with the concoction for the lethal injection. I was like, okay, he's making this up. No, he's okay. Like, like he was stunning. I would have envisioned panels, the UN, you know, all kinds of stuff. Nope. Nope. So the short version, and I appreciate when you're talking to an academic, you ask for a short version. Um, the short version is that um, each new technology of execution generally has been developed because of perceived problems with the prior uh, method of execution that was being used. Two legislators in Oklahoma thought that Oklahoma needed a new and better method of execution. And they proposed lethal injection to figure out what chemicals would use, what substance would be used, how that would be delivered. They sought medical advice. And they couldn't find anybody to give them that medical advice. They finally got the medical advice from a person who was then the medical examiner in Oklahoma named Jay Chapman. And Chapman didn't do extensive research. He didn't do studies. He didn't consult the United Nations. He didn't con con convene panels of experts. He proposed initially a two drug protocol and subsequently added a third. And he admitted, he acknowledged these were hunches. These were not based on, you know, scientific studies. These are his hunches. And what was remarkable, this goes back to what you said earlier, what was remarkable is how quickly his three drug protocol became the protocol used in lethal injection. Indeed, in every lethal injection between 1982 and 2009, Chapman's original three drug protocol was used. It was only when uh, drug shortages, when drug manufacturers began to refuse to supply these chemicals that states had to devise new lethal injection protocols. And Chapman was interviewed long time after uh, lethal injection was adopted. And he admitted he was stunned that his three drug protocol, which was not scientifically based, was not you know panels of experts, became the standard used in lethal injection across the entire country. Okay, so let me just ask a dumb question here. What I thought when I read that was, does the U.S. government not know of a pill that one can take? I mean, you think about, you know, like the spy moves, and, and then it's just, it's over that quick. Do we not know that? Or is that just not humane? What, why is that type of stuff not in play here? Good. So 
we can we we can always sit around and say in a world that doesn't exist can't we put people to death painlessly i like to come at it a different way so if you read the state protocols for lethal injection in any state in the united states no state is required to tailor their protocol to the physiology of the person they're executing. If you go into a hospital and you need surgery, your anesthesiologist is going to look at your heart and see whether you have any heart problems. They're going to look at your throat and can they get the tubes down your throat. They're going to look at your body mass index and they're going to calculate how much of this drug do they need to use in order to sedate you? That's, um, that's a highly individualized form of treatment. No state in the United States prescribes highly individualized treatments. It's one size fits all. And uh, again, I think the commitment, you again, you illustrated it. You know, the commitment is we, we wanna, ex look, this is what the United States Supreme Court has said. The United States Supreme Court has said that the prohibition of cruel punishment does not mean that executions have to be painless. They do not mean that executions have to be painless. All it means is no more pain than is necessary. And that standard, no more pain than is necessary, allows the states to use methods of execution that impose pain on people unlike your imagining of the magic pill that will mm -hmm. get people painlessly to death. And your idea, if we're gonna execute people, we need to find a way to do so painlessly. Maybe it will work hypothetically. It might put the death penalty out of business. Yeah, well, I mean, I think when I'm thinking of um, you know, again, when I was going through the book, reading the, you know, I was like, what would be ways in which, um, a, and we're talking about ham next, but a, you guarantee a death, right? So you got, you can't, you can't ever have a situation where you're not guaranteeing a death because that's, that would definitely be a violation of the eighth amendment because you could go on indefinitely. And that's part of the problem you have in the book here, right? So you got to guarantee a death. And then you say, well, the death needs to be as painless as humanly possible. And so you know, if you, in, in the, the kind of the gruesome scenario I said, I said earlier, you know, like six shots to the head and chest at one time, does the person feel pain? I, you know, I have no idea. I suspect it would be so minuscule that, you know, it, it would be instantaneous death almost. And so I, I, I do think there probably are ways we could devise to, um, to, to execute someone in that manner. But those are not closed behind the curtain, off in the distance that no one could see. And that, and that becomes part of the issue. Yeah. But again, I want to just say to you, mm -hmm. I think we ought to look at the death penalty we have. Let's talk about the death penalty we have. Mm -hmm. Not engage in the hypothetical of could we find a this or a that. And the reason I want to examine the death penalty we have, and in my world, we would get rid of the death penalty but I, this goes back to what you were saying before. You see, I think if Americans of goodwill examine the death penalty we have, 
we will find that many people who believe in the death penalty in the abstract will say it's not good enough in the way in which it's being practiced. That and if we could get to that point, <laughs> and I think we are getting to that point in the United States where people say it's not good enough in the way in which it's being practiced, it damages our values. If we execute innocent people, if we convict innocent people and send them to death row, that's damaging our commitment to fairness. If we execute people because of the race of their victim, that's damaging to our commitments to equal treatment. That's where I think the conversation about the death penalty needs to be. And when we have that conversation and people have confronted the way the death penalty actually operates, then we can imagine the hypotheticals okay. of uh, you know the painless executions that we would like to see if we're going to have the death penalty and executions without death sentences without errors and death sentences without arbitrariness or discrimination. Well, I'm going to give you, I think, the best example from the book. I was telling my, my kids about this one, or my son at least. He's 14. We we're talking about the, the book and the ethics of lethal injection. Uh, Dole Ham, I think, would be the best example that I can think of from your book to make the case that you're wanting to be made, um, which is how does it go? How does it work? Um, you know, is it what we think it is? In, in Dole Ham's case, no, it's, it's none of those things. And there's a picture here that's, you know, pretty disturbing um, in the book. And you look at that, and you go, good gosh, we'll unpack who Dole Ham was, yep. what happened, and what yep. was the result here. So, because this would be a good, this would, to your point, this would be, I think, a prime case for people to stop and contemplate on. Doyle Ham was convicted of a pretty gruesome crime in Alabama. He was tried, sentenced, convicted, convicted, sentenced to death. He had a very good, I mean, a really extraordinary uh, lawyer who's actually a Columbia, a, a law professor at Columbia Law School in New York. Most people on death row don't have the quality of lawyers that ended up representing uh, Doyle Ham. And this lawyer, Bernard Harcourt, went to court and said, if you try to execute this man using lethal injection, you will fail because of his, uh, the veins that he has uh, from drug use. You won't be able to get the IV in. Courts were not responsive to his plea. So the state of Alabama tried to get lethal inject, to, to, to kill Doyle Ham by lethal injection. For hours, they tried to find a place where they could insert the needle to secure the IV line. And Doyle Ham suffered puncture wounds all over his body. Eventually, the execution was stopped. And Doyle Ham was returned to uh, death row, where he ended up living the rest of his life. And he died of a heart attack um, on death row years later. So by the way, I should be clear, most botched executions end up with the person being executed dying. Right, it's very rare. Doyle Ham, Romel Broom in Ohio, Willie Francis in the 1940s in 
uh, in Louisiana, uh, in Alabama just recently, uh, Alan Miller. There are very few people who have survived a botched execution. A botched execution typically means that the person will end up dead, but that the process of getting there will violate the state protocol or violate standard operating procedure. And how long did, did this go on with him? This period of time? Several hours. Yeah. I think it's like several hours, two and a half, three hours in the book. And in the book, yeah, and of... in Alabama, we just, we had an execution of uh, Joe Nathan James went on for three hours. So uh, it is lethal injection is a very complicated, um, a very complicated method of execution. You got to get the chemicals right. You got to get the dosage right. Uh, because doctors don't participate in, you know, getting people ready and inserting the IV. You have untrained, largely untrained prison personnel. You know, if you're a phlebotomist, right, you go get your blood drawn. You're dealing with someone who does it all day long. You know, the people in the prisons who are trying to insert that IV, they may do it once and then two years later, it's another execution and they're doing it again. So lethal injection is a complicated procedure. It can fail and it can fail in many, it can fail in many ways. And the picture of Doyle Ham, the wounds, the, the kind of puncture wounds, I think vividly illustrates this question about if we're going to execute people, we better get it right. And it vividly illustrates, uh, it's an example so when you talk about these puncture wounds, let's let's push it a little bit more graphic here. These are not in the wrist. I mean, there might be some in the wrist, but these are starting at the ankle, the picture at least, going all the way up to the to the hip. I mean, to the genital area. Like this is um, Dolham, obviously a man. So this is you know for men the, the cringe factor of just looking at that picture, going, oh my, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Like that, that has to be excruciating to get an IV in that part of your body. Yes. And um, he's not the only one. Uh, no, there's another uh, gruesomely botched execution in Oklahoma, the execution of Clayton Lockett in 2014. Uh, Sometimes they use what's called a cutdown procedure. They're they're actually trying to insert the IV, but it's not going directly into the vein. They have to make a surgical incision to try to figure out whether they can get the IV in. In Ham's case and Lockett's case and Joe Nathan James' case, they, they were searching for a place to insert the IV all over the body. Uh, and by the way, the people when that is being done, this goes back to what you said. When that is being done, it's not done in front of witnesses. So that is completely, you know, you go to be executed, they put you on the gurney, they open the curtain, there are you know, 10 or 20 people looking. But the process that Doyle Ham went through or that Clayton Lockett went through or that happened just recently in Alabama, that's done, there aren't witnesses. Right. Right. So let's go back to something that you you touched on briefly, but it was stunning again in the book. Um, and I'm not sure if this is the case with Dolham or not, but, but generally speaking, Bob goes down for execution. 
the guy who administers it is not a doctor, not a registered nurse. It's some, it's a prison official who, as you say, might do it occasionally. They are um, not trained. The person who is, if I get, if I get this wrong, please help in here, but if I just think the person who's administering the cocktail itself is not a doctor. There is a doctor sometimes there, but they're just kind of watching to pronounce the person dead. If the person goes into cardiac arrest, they try to revive the person, which I think is complete nonsense. They try to revive the person to then execute them. Yep. Um, and in the case of Dolham, this went on for you know two and a half, three hours, trying to find multiple points um, to inject the the IV. And, and just real quick, I am sympath- I am sympathetic. Um, and I don't know the court's argument here on proceeding forward. If you are a death penalty advocate and you are a lethal inje- lethal injection advocate, you'd have to be leery that um, a death penalty a person on death row would be arguing, I can't take lethal injection because of this, this, and this. And so there, I don't know what the process is. If you know, that'd be, that'd be interesting, but it would seem like a medical examiner should come in and say, no, I, I, within it's reasonable to think, or there's a reasonable time you can poke someone. So th- this process is, you know, two and a half hours of being jabbed over and over and over and over and over is, is brutal. Um, and it's not done by the highest trained professionals that we have and the cost to do that after you paid for someone to be incarcerated for years and years and years has to be pennies on the dollar to make sure that you do execute them in a proper manner. So there's a, yeah, there's a problem, right? What the problem is that doctors take a Hippocratic oath. The Hippocratic oath is do no harm. Uh, So the medical profession has taken the view that doctors cannot participate in executions, except, as you say, to pronounce a person dead, or I guess to provide, as you said, extraordinary medical aid if something Mm -hmm. um, untoward happens. And this, again, goes back to what I said a minute ago. You've got to look at the death penalty system that we have. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the death penalty system that we have, I mean, again, to, to... to think broadly, we ask prison guards to put people to death. We ask prison guards to put people to death. It's not like assisted suicide where you've reached a point in your life where you want to die. Mm. We ask people to put people to death who I can't say that everybody's executed doesn't want to die, but we know that most people who are executed don't want to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, in most places, executions, uh, you know, like they're not a lot of them. So uh, we, we have this image, you, it's what you started with, that, oh, the death penalty process, so much is invested in getting it absolutely right. Well, if we actually look, and this is happening now, if you look at state protocols, the rules governing, what's happened over time is they are giving more discretion to people on that execution team to execute in a way that's reasonable, to identify drugs. Some, some state protocols don't even require particular kinds of drugs. They leave it up to the Department of Correction to decide. So in that process, we shouldn't be surprised that mistakes will be made. Now, again, I wanna be careful. 
whatever happened to Doyle Ham, in comparison with what Doyle Ham did, come on. Oh yeah, so they poked him for three hours. That's why I go back to what I said earlier. The way we punish is as much about us and who we want to be. Right. And just punishment requires that we exercise discipline and restraint in the face of extraordinary provocation. The crimes are horrible. Mm-hmm. That's what you were saying before. We ask police, prosecutors, judges, jurors to ex- exercise extraordinary discipline and restraint in dealing with people who have committed often committed horrible crimes. Now, remember what I said before, right? Sure. We think they may have committed horrible crimes. We often get that part wrong. But that's that's an extraordinary thing that we're asking people to do. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we take it out of the, out of the death penalty um, scenario, perhaps we might agree on this one, um, and you take it to how we handled people in the war on terror, would we bring them down to Gitmo? And we take them out of Gitmo. And because they're in Gitmo, they weren't actually in the U.S. And they were they were a war criminal. And so they didn't have rights. And next thing you know, there are really no rules. I mean, there's air quote rules, but there are no rules. And so it's, you know, when you know, for Doyle Ham, I'm not trying to make him out to be the patron saint of, of injustice. Um, the, the question is, is two hours of needle poking in your genitals or around your genitals, is that acceptable or not? And if it is acceptable, as society says, well, that's one thing. Society is not aware of this problem, though, so we can't we can't have the discussion. Um, but when you do things like in Gitmo, there are no rules, and the people there are making the rules, and they're making ethical determinations in a closed circle, and that's usually bad, regardless of who the group is, right? <laughs> because you can't get an outside perspective to help you judge what's going on. Um, and so, yes, I'm not trying to. Um, act as if Dolham is the patron saint. Um, but I do go, hmm, if we are going to hold to these, or at least for me, if I'm going to hold these ethics and these standards, how then do I go about, um, how then do I go about making sure that we've convicted someone who is guilty? Um, and we've done that in a way that's a very high standard. And that's, that's number one. And that, that, that's a, we could probably talk hours on that. So, uh, but the further you get from public view, the harder it is for us to evaluate these things. And I think to your point, if people read the book um, and they're on my side of the issue, they, I think they should walk away going, hmm, okay, how then do we um, push policymakers to have better procedures in place? So what would be your advice for someone on my side of the aisle? How should we talk to policymakers? Because obviously I'm, I'm not going to switch to your side, I don't think, but I'm open that for discussion. But, but, but today where I'm at, what should I be talking to policymakers about? You should be talking policy. First of all, I don't want to help your side, but <laughs> um, you should be talking policymakers about investing uh, more resources to ensure that uh, when we try and convict someone, we get the right man. Many states have what are called conviction integrity units to kind of review and make sure. You should be talking to policymakers about investing more resources to try to ensure that death sentencing is not tainted by racism or arbitrariness. 
you should be talking to your legislators and policymakers about tightening the rules uh, surrounding the execution process. We're going in the opposite direction. We're giving more and more invisible discretion to people in the Department of Corrections or in prisons. That's the exact opposite way that we ought to, that we ought to go. If you want to have a death penalty in the United States, you want to ensure that innocent people are not convicted, that people are not convicted because of the race of their victim, and that when we execute people, these are tightly controlled, highly supervised, uh, and well-disciplined processes. We are a long, long way uh, from, from, that, from that situation. Do I think we can get to that place? No, which is why I think that we ought to not be engaged in a practice like, uh, like the death penalty. But fair-minded people, reasonable people can, can disagree at the end of the day about whether we should have a death penalty. But I hope that fair-minded people on both sides would agree that we don't want to have a death penalty that risks executing the innocent, that's inflected with race, and that punishes people in a cruel way. Well, you and I agree on that. Um, so for your side, because that's the side you want to help, <laughs> so <laughs> what should they do? They should do what, what I hope I've just done for the last hour. They should recognize that reasonable people can disagree. They should speak in a way that doesn't accuse the other side of being evil or unreasonable. They should try to identify a place where we can stand together. I say, look, you may be in favor of the death penalty, but aren't you against executing the innocent? You may be in favor of the death penalty, but aren't you against executing people because of the race of the victim? You may be against the death penalty, but aren't you against executing people in a way that is cruel? We need to find a place which offers people a chance to stand together to advance their common values. And at the end of the day, we might not, you know, agree about whether or not we should retain the death penalty. But uh, we would go a long way uh, to establishing, uh, I would say, a, a common place rather than to just butt heads and uh, end up accusing each other of being evil and uh, uh, Ill, Ill intended. Well, I, yeah, I. I... Echo those sentiments. I think the both sides are in favor of higher uh, burden of proof. And so that's where we should at least agree on there. So thank you so much for your time today. And uh, thank you for the book. First of all, um, uh, thank you. Thank you for your questions. I will say uh, I do a lot of this conversations about capital punishment. I never remember a conversation about capital punishment. Uh, which, in my view, has been as sophisticated, nuanced, generous, uh, and informed as the questions you've asked. So I'm incredibly grateful to you. Well, thank you for your kind words, and thank you for the book. I thought it was very, very well done. Best of luck thank to you. you. Stay, stay well. I wish you the best. Okay. What did you think? Was it, as he said, maybe one of the most thoughtful conversations about the death penalty? Or... 
Is it just a couple guys yakking? I thought it was a really, really good podcast. Would love to hear your feedback. And hopefully, hopefully, it's worth a five-star review. Finally, let me know. Pro-death penalty, on the fence, anti-death penalty, where warroommedia.com.